Good morning again. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. It's great to be worshiping God together with you. If this is your very first time with us, we are glad that you've joined us. I just want to remind you of something Philip prayed for and Daniel announced earlier. Is we hold our membership classes at Redeemer five times a year, and today is one of those days. We'll do the entire class from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. Doesn't guarantee you'll join if you come or commit you to join, but it is the very first step required for membership here at Redeemer. You'll hear more about what we believe as a church, how we do life together, and that's today, 2 p.m., behind the Limeridian Hotel in Garhut. There's a map on page 11. No need to sign up at this point. Come. There's childcare and dinner provided. Also, Philip prayed for our financial seminar, which will happen after the service uh, behind you in the annex. If you've been looking at our sermon card, you will have noticed that today we start a new series in the book of 2 Timothy. And we're going to teach it in a unique way. There are 10 passages we've broken 2 Timothy up into. And at Redeemer, we have 10 elders. And so what we're going to do is each of the 10 elders is going to preach one passage from the letter. And so we'll have the privilege next week of hearing from Tom Samuel, and then Benoit and Jason, David, Philip, Glenn, Scott, Frank, and Nissen. This is intentional. This is not an accident. We're doing this intentionally. It's not because I'm burned out and need a break. I'm certainly not going to be on an extended holiday in the Maldives during this time, although that sounds like fun. I'll be right here sitting under good preaching just like the rest of us. It's actually a sacrifice to not be preaching. I love preaching God's word. I love holding out the Bible and the gospel to you on Fridays. It's a wonderful privilege, a high honor. But I also enjoy meeting with church leaders and training our staff and spending time with the elders, discipling and counseling church members, training church planters, planning for the future, praying for the church. I'll also be preaching at the church plants in Sharjah and Fujairah, encouraging the saints that are in those places. There are many reasons we're doing this, one of which is we want to see a multitude of men raised up who can rightly preach the word of God. It's also an opportunity to remind me and all of us that the church isn't built on any one person, but it's built on Jesus Christ himself. It gives us a chance to be trained to learn, to expositionally listen to a multitude of different preachers with different preaching styles and gifts. It also gives us an opportunity to be challenged in ways that you might not be challenged from me. There are applications and things that certain elders will point you to in the text that I would never have pointed you to. This will help us in our aim for well-rounded exposition and intentional application. Well, as we begin our study in this magnificent letter, let's go to our great God in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, open our eyes to see and savor Jesus today. Change our hearts. Transform our affections. Alter our lives. That we not love the world, but our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. True confession this morning. Who owns a selfie stick? Now, don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. I don't want to call anyone out. God knows who you are. (laughs) You know who you are. All owners of selfie sticks will be found out on the last day. God knows. Now, okay, okay, okay. Selfie sticks are great. They're fun. I may or may not own one myself, but that's between me and God. All that to say, I like selfies. I enjoy them. I took my daughter Nora on a daddy-daughter date this last week, and we took many cupcake-filled selfies together. Our family over the weekend was at the mall, and we actually waited in a line to have the privilege of taking a family selfie with a dinosaur. Of course, some selfies go bad, like the guy who took a picture with the hijacker on that plane from Egypt. Not good. Very bad. Or the woman I once saw take a selfie of herself and a pile of dead sharks at the fish souk. Of course, I had to take a picture of her taking a picture of herself and the sharks. But that's beside the point. Selfies are here, there, and everywhere. Selfies are here to stay. I wonder, though, if you took selfies of everything you did throughout the day, every day, not just the moments you want to remember, what would the photo album of your life look like? If we were to scroll down through the photos of your album, of the most important events of your day, back in these screens behind me, what would we see? Would you be nervous? Proud? Would it resemble an exciting life? Or a bored one? Are you lonely? Does happiness or sadness mark your days? Are you depressed? Would these photos show someone who is content? Would your photo album be filled with regrets? Maybe you've squandered opportunities to share the gospel with coworkers or neighbors. You failed to stand up against unethical business deals at work. You've sacrificed your purity. You've bullied your spouse in marriage. Or maybe those pictures would be filled with accomplishments, promotions, ministry activity. What kind of pictures would make up your life? And what is the mark of a successful and fulfilled life anyway? What is the unashamed life? Well, this is what the letter of 2 Timothy is all about. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles. You'll find it toward the end of the New Testament in a section called the Pastoral Epistles. Letters on matters of the church. If 1 Timothy answered the question last spring, what is a healthy church? Then perhaps 2 Timothy answers the question, what is a healthy church elder or church leader or even member? The primary theme is Timothy, the person. Timothy, fellow Christian, fellow leader, follower of Christ. Are you living a life worthy of Christ? 
Is your life successful? Well, in our seven verses this morning, we'll see three things. If you're taking notes, a a short three-part outline. Number one, a calling. Number two, a child. Number three, a charge. That's the outline. Calling, child, charge. Let's look first at number one, a calling. Verse one. Paul. That sounds like a good place to stop and take a break. We've got to know who Paul is, this author of the letter. Before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee who hated Christians. He followed the law, prided himself in trying to be good. He enjoyed seeing Christians beaten and even killed for their faith. But on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there, Jesus came to him. He blinded Saul and showed him the true light. And Saul repented of his sin. Saul trusted in Jesus to save him. His heart was changed and Jesus gave him a new name. And he now had a completely different trajectory and direction for his life. Now, Saul, the murderer of Christians, became Paul, the the friend of Christians. He loves Jesus and wants to tell everyone about Christ's death and resurrection. He wants people to be forgiven of their sins, and so he goes on mission trips throughout Asia, starting churches and sharing the gospel. And he's imprisoned for his faith a number of times, beaten over and over again, constantly in danger of death, five times whipped and lashed 39 times, beaten with rods on more than one occasion, stoned, shipwrecked three times, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from wilderness and the sea. He's been hungry and thirsty. And to make matters worse, Paul says he has the overwhelming daily concern for the churches he's planted and for the leaders he sent out. He's endured, but now he's in prison again for ministry. And he's likely in an obscure or unknown area in Rome because later on in the chapter, we see that his friend Onesiphorus goes on quite a hunt to find him. No one else is even looking. Others like Demas have deserted him and the faith. He's cold. He later asks for his cloak to be brought to him. He asks for some books, for friends. He's alone and hungry. His body probably aches. He's now in his 60s. And after all those beatings, who knows when the last time Paul's had a good full night's sleep. He's had a hard life. And now he's there in the dungeon under the persecution of the evil emperor Nero. Now, Nero was a wicked, wicked man. He made sport out of killing Christians. It was entertainment for the masses. And Paul thinks his time to die is coming soon. This is the context for this letter. This is the events surrounding this letter that Paul pens from a dungeon prison somewhere in Rome. Doesn't sound like a very successful and fulfilling life, does it? Paul's selfies could be labeled album of discouragement. No Facebook fame or Instagram glory for Paul. Well, how does he keep going? 
Well, let's keep reading its introduction in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a sent out one. Apostle of Christ Jesus indicates Paul's special authority as one sent by Christ to act, to write on his behalf. This is a massive personal claim. He's ranking himself with the 12 men Jesus personally selected to be his representatives. Paul claims to be added to this select group. Now, there are two kinds of apostles, uppercase A, apostles, and lowercase A, apostles. There are no more uppercase A, apostles today in the same way that Paul was an apostle. An uppercase A, apostle is one who saw the risen Christ. You have to see the the risen Christ, and Paul commissioned you specifically. Today, there are people who have the gift of apostleship, and that's different. Ephesians 4 tells us some are called to be apostles. That's a lowercase a apostle. This is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives some believers. It usually manifests itself into some type of leadership, some type of pioneering ability, perhaps Church planters going into unreached and unchartered territories, starting churches, would have a gift of apostleship. What Paul is talking about here is the uppercase A, apostle. A special office of a select few who saw the risen Christ themselves. Being with Jesus was a main qualification that an apostle had to have. Well, how did this apostleship come about? Well, he tells us in verse 1, by the will of God. Paul didn't nominate himself for this job. He didn't wait in a long line to sign up and register as an apostle. It wasn't because he was gifted. It wasn't because he was better than anyone else. It wasn't because he earned this office or role. He says, God appointed me. It was by his will according to his plan, and it was according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul had been commissioned as an apostle according to the promise of life. What's the promise of life? The gospel. The gospel is the good news of eternal life found only in Christ. It's amazing that while Paul is there in the dungeon, in prison, staring death in the face, that he describes the gospel as the promise of life. Paul understood that success wasn't found in this life, but in the next. And he saw as his life's aim to hold out this good news to others. This good news offers life to all men, women, and children. It offers life for everyone from Alaska to Australia, from Poland to Papua New Guinea. Young, old, rich, poor. The gospel is life. And more than that, the gospel itself promises life to all who are in Christ. But this life is a gift. It must be because there is nothing you and I could do on our own. All of us have sinned and rejected God, each and every one of us. Each of us, when we were dead in our sin, rejected a relationship with God. And on our own, we tried to take 
to ourselves fake happiness that we thought would fill the void in our hearts. The Bible says the wages of that rebellion, the wages of that sin is eternal death and eternal judgment. Hopeless and helpless. That's our life apart from God's intervention. When we were dead in our sin and have no hope, we had no joy, we had no happiness, we had no life. And not only that, when this life is over, certain death awaits. But the good news that we preach every day and the good news that Paul here in verse 1 attests to is that God did not leave us as orphans in this world, but Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to this earth. He lived the life that none of us could do, that none of us could do for even an hour. Even 10 minutes, if we tried really, really hard, all of us would fail. And Jesus came and lived that perfect life for us. And then he marched to his death on the cross, and on that cross he atoned for He took our sin. He took our punishment. He became our sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to die forever. And then on the third day, we just celebrated this on Easter there on the beach. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and he proved that everything he said was true. Everything he did was true. And that that sacrifice on the cross was true. When they saw that risen Christ, all of it was deemed 100% true. That forgiveness of sin and eternal life could be found in Jesus. There is the promise of life through Christ Jesus. Oh friend, if you're here and you don't yet follow Jesus, I urge you to follow him. Maybe you've been coming for any number of weeks or months and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. Don't wait another day. Maybe this is your first time ever in a Christian worship gathering. Friend, it is no mistake that you're here today. It is no mistake that you're here today to hear this news. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. Gladly accept this free gift. It's the difference between life and death. Well, this is how Paul introduces himself. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. He willed it to happen. He planned it to happen. And he commissioned me by his will to hold out the gospel to the world. That's Paul's calling. That's what he's all about. And that sense of calling kept him going in those difficult dungeon days. If Paul had an album of selfies, I wonder if this is what it would look like. Maybe a picture of Paul taking a selfie with him and the prison guard he was chained to in Rome at that prison. Those times that Paul says he faithfully shared the gospel with those guards because for eight hours straight he had a captive audience. Or maybe he took a selfie after he was beaten to show that even though he was beaten for his faith in the Lord, he still had joy. That they couldn't take away his happiness in Christ. Or maybe there's a selfie there in the dungeon by himself, just sitting in the dark. And yet not lonely because he knows Christ is with him. Paul's not despairing. He's praying for the pastors of churches that he started. What about you? Our lives might not seem as dramatic as Paul's. 
but the same God of grace is at work in us. Think of it. Jesus, who rules the cosmos and commissioned Paul, is working in you. Believer, Jesus, who holds the whole world in his hands, is working in and through you. Fellow believer, how's your sense of calling this morning? Are you able to rejoice in times of suffering because of what Jesus has done for you? Are you boldly proclaiming Christ to those around you? Christian friend, you have the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. A successful life is one who holds out this truth for others. God first loved us. How can we hold on to that and not give it away to others? That is our motivation. Your calling as a Christian is to use your words and your life to spread the gospel of Christ. So friend, what comes out of your mouth at work? Complaining words or the gospel? What comes out of your mouth at school? Curse words or the gospel? What comes out of your mouth at home with your kids? Angry words or the gospel? We have the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. How can we hold that inside? If we believe that there is a real heaven and a real hell, and there is, then we must be moved to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. Even non-believers understand this about the Christian faith. It's not a surprise to them. A great illustration of this comes from a man named Penn Gillette of the well-known illusionist duo Penn and Teller. On his video blog, Penn tells about a man who came to him after a show, gave him a Bible, and told him about the gospel. Here's what Penn says about this experience. Now, these are all Penn's words, not mine. He said, I'm a businessman, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not defensive and he looked me right in the eyes and he was truly complimentary. It did not seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. Then he gave me this Bible. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Those are the words of an atheist. Strong and convicting words. If we really believe 
that we as Christians have the best news in the world. If we really believe we have life-giving news, how can we keep it to ourselves? We have the cure for the greatest epidemic in the world. Sin against the holy God. Paul understood his calling because he understood that the gospel is the promise of eternal life. We've seen Paul's calling. Well, number two. Next, we see a child. Calling, number two, a child. Verse two. To Timothy, my beloved child. This letter was written by Paul, the apostle, to Timothy, his child. Timothy is first mentioned in Lystra during Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Paul addresses Timothy here as a spiritual child. Timothy likely came to faith under Paul's ministry. Then they served together in ministry with one another on multiple occasions. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to lead the ministry in that strategic city, to keep the church on the right course. Paul greets Timothy with a typical Pauline introduction, verse 3, or finishing verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's typical, except the word mercy is, is unique specifically to the two Timothy letters, Maybe it's to show his tenderness and love for his child in the faith. Then verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul, serving God, followed the pattern of his ancestors, those born before him. It's interesting, Paul viewed his faith not as a break with his Jewish forefathers, but in continuity with their faith. Paul's not left the Old Testament God to now worship uh, a different God, but he's recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. On one level, there was a complete break, a complete turnaround from Judaism. And yet, on another level, it was the true continuation of, of the original Jewish faith. Paul doesn't look back at those early days as having a bad conscience, but of one of ignorance and unbelief in Jesus. He's mentioning all this as a segue into talking about Timothy's family in a minute. But before he does, he tells Timothy that he's always remembering him in his prayers. Well, these are really tender and personal verses. Paul's there in the prison dungeon, and he's praying for Timothy. Now, normally, we as Christians pray for those who are in prison. We write encouraging letters and notes to those who are in prison. But here, Paul, the one in prison, the one about to die, and he's praying for those outside of prison. He's writing letters to those outside of prison. He's not consumed with his near certain death, but for his child. Now, if I'm Paul, if I'm in prison, and the food's not great, I'm in pain, I'm cold, I'm lonely, I'm about to die. Now, to be honest, I'd be a little self-consumed with my own life. 
Yeah, here's Paul relying on Christ, praying and asking for prayer. His prayers are not filled with bitterness and anger, but love. He's thanking God for Timothy. He longs for fellowship with his child and the faith. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, Timothy, I long to see you. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul loved this man. what, What tears is he talking about? We don't know. But at some point between imprisonments, Paul and Timothy were together. And at the point where they departed and left one another, they're in tears. Timothy is in in tears. He's in tears at being separated from his father in the faith. Now those of us who are believers all have spiritual parents in the faith. And you can probably relate a bit to this sadness at being separated. I, I think of my friend John who first shared the gospel with me in faith. I think of Pastor Keith, my youth pastor, who taught me how to walk with God. And Pastor Tommy, who taught me how to love God's word and to study it. Now here's Timothy in tears, being separated from his father in the faith. Here's Paul longing to see Timothy, that he may be filled with joy. Timothy loves his father in the faith. Paul loves Timothy. Paul's encouraging Timothy. And in verse 5, he encourages Timothy in his faith. He thanks God for Timothy's spiritual heritage. Verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. They're from prison. He tells Timothy there in Ephesus, Timothy's working hard as a pastor. Maybe he's discouraged in the faith. He's facing opposition. He's facing turmoil. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, your faith is real. Your faith is sincere. Press on. I'm convinced of this. Convinced not only of your faith, but of the lineage of faith before you, of your sweet grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice. Paul's thought of Timothy's faith brings to mind Timothy's wonderful family. Timothy came from a godly heritage. We know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy's father was a Greek, probably not a Christian. But these two women gave Timothy a good start. Now remember, while a godly heritage is great, it doesn't save anyone. Being born in a specific country, having a certain passport, attending church as a child, having Christian parents, grandparents, and calling yourself a Christian because you're not a Buddhist, Muslim, or Hindu doesn't save you. Going to a Christian high school, attending your church's youth group, visiting your Christian grandparents for Christmas doesn't make you a Christian. A godly heritage doesn't save you. But it is an undeserved grace in your life. If you're a child or youth and your parents are followers of Christ who bring you here to our gatherings at Redeemer, you are blessed. That is a wonderful gift to you. That is God's kindness to you. But to be saved, youth, Teenager, child, to be saved, you must personally, on your own, 
repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. Lois and Eunice, their faith didn't automatically transfer and give Timothy faith. It took Paul sharing the gospel, reaching out to Timothy, that eventually led him to faith. Everyone has to own their faith by repenting and believing. But what an amazing privilege to grow up in Timothy's home. Now parents, while we can't guarantee the faith of our children, not even the most faithful parents can guarantee salvation for their kids. And we should certainly never coerce them to say that they believe the gospel. We can, however, lead them to the foot of the cross where they can see Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world, our merciful Savior. Being born to believing parents is a gift of grace, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Mothers and fathers, are you pointing your children to Christ? Are you having gospel conversations with your kids? Are you reading the Bible to them? Do you pray for and with your children? Do you look for teachable moments in their, in their lives to point them to the hope they can have in Jesus? Do your children see you share your faith with a store clerk, with a laborer, or your neighbor? Do you ask your children tough spiritual questions? Do you stay up late with them and sit there on the couch talking to them about what Jesus has done? If you hear these questions and you don't know where to start, try asking another mom or dad in this congregation for help. It's not a shameful thing. We all need help in shepherding our kids. There's no shame in asking for help. That's why we're here. That's why we're a church. It's to help one another in our walks with God and our ministry and our families. Last week, the members read our church covenant together in our service. There's a section in there where we say, We promise to bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. If you need help doing that, Come talk to any of the elders or another one of our members and we'd be glad to help. Pastor Jason Barris leads our family ministry and he would love to connect you with other parents so you could walk alongside each other in the spiritual nurturing of your home. Whether you have biological or adoptive children or not, who are your spiritual children? None of us is child-free in this regard. We are all called to make disciples of Jesus. Paul's child was Timothy. Who are you spiritually fathering or mothering? All of us are called to do this. Who do you pray for regularly? Who do you check up on? Who do you long to see grow in their faith? Who do you study the scriptures with? Who do you ask tough questions of? Who do you encourage on a regular basis? This is all of our mission, to pass the gospel to children in the faith. We are to pass on what's been given to us. We're just part of God's ongoing story. It reminds me of the Olympic torch. The Olympics are 
coming soon. And before the Olympics ever starts, you have the torchbearers running from some starting point to the Olympic site. Each torchbearer grabs the torch and they run for a certain distance and then they pass the torch to another bearer. And then that bearer runs the distance and then passes the torch to another bearer. Each one a part of the story and each is necessary to get that torch from start to final destination. In a way, this is the mission of God. Each one of us taking the gospel and passing it on to another, who then passes it on to another, who passes it on to another, and so on. Paul is concerned that the gospel be preserved in the church throughout all the ages. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus onto the world. Paul's understanding of calling led him to pour his life into children of the faith. Paul understood his calling. Hold out the promise of eternal life. He understood that he should have children in the faith. And now finally, the third point this morning, we see a charge. Paul's going to give each and every one of us a charge to leave here this morning. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul's urging Timothy to use his gift for God's work. He says, fan into flame the gift of God. Now, there are a couple of questions that we need to answer. What is this gift? And what does it mean that it came through the laying on of Paul's hands? We see the same event described in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul writes to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. At some point in time, Paul and the local elders laid their hands on Timothy and commissioned him for the ministry. Apparently, some kind of prophecy was spoken regarding a specific gift that Timothy had. We don't know exactly the nature of the gift. Many have speculated that it was a teaching gift. Timothy is a pastor. He's leading the ministry in Ephesus. Perhaps it was some gift of teaching or preaching. The reason Paul mentions the laying on of hands here is to affirm that Paul knows that Timothy has this gift. Timothy was accountable to use the gift for God. There was special application in this command for Timothy, as we see. But the principle applies to all Christians. 1 Corinthians 12 says that every believer has a gift given to them by God. They're called spiritual gifts. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit enables you with some supernatural gift. Romans 12, you can read later on today, that 1 Corinthians passage lists some of these gifts. Those lists and others are not identical to one another. It makes it seem like we don't have one list with all of the gifts listed. But some of them mentioned are gifts like giving or serving, gifts of mercy, teaching, administration, training the church in evangelism, showing hospitality, and there are are others. All Christians are to do all of these to some extent, 
But those who have these gifts are able to uniquely build up the church in those specific areas. How do you know what your gift is? There are spiritual gift tests or inventories you could take, but I think far better than that is just to start serving. Just to start serving in different areas and find out what, what do you enjoy doing? What are you good at? What do people... What are people encouraged by in your life? What service bears fruit in your life and in others? What do your pastors say about your gifting? What do your fellow members say about your gifting and about how you're being used in the church? Let other people speak into your life and encourage you with evidences of grace. And cultivate your gift. Don't neglect it. Gifts are not for admiring on the shelf of your house. They need to be used and cultivated. In fact, Paul uses an illustration and says, you've got this gift, now fan the flame of the gift. Don't let it just sit there. Don't let it just be be dormant. Fan the flame. Timothy, use your gift. He gives us this great illustration. In my Saturday morning men's discipleship group, Daniel Mwendu, who is leading the service this morning, was leading a devotional for for us men, and he led it on this verse. And Daniel said that when he grew up in the village in Kenya, there were no matches there that you would use to light a fire, and so you, you had to light a fire in other ways. And one of the ways to have fire for cooking your breakfast was to light up coals, some charcoal, the night before, and you would lay it underneath some ash so that it would preserve the heat and the coals for your morning breakfast and tea and coffee and things like that. And so you'd go in the morning, you'd take out the charcoals and you would take some little pieces of dried grass. You'd put that on the charcoal and you'd, you'd start blowing, just blowing on the charcoal until you saw a little, little flame come. And then what you do is you'd grab bigger pieces of wood to make a bigger fire and you'd keep blowing and then you start fanning the flame. And you'd keep doing that and keep doing that until you got this big fire. The only problem is, if you didn't keep fanning the flame, the fire would shrink and even die. And so you actually had someone stationed by the fire that whole cooking time, that whole breakfast time, just to keep that fire going. And they would be fanning and blowing and, and fanning that flame. You couldn't stop. What Paul's telling Timothy here is, Timothy, fan the flame! Fan the flame of your gift. Keep fanning it. Don't stop. I mean, we don't know what was going on in Timothy's life, but being young, being in a difficult city like Ephesus, it appears from what Paul is saying that Timothy maybe was growing weary or timid. Maybe Timothy was lacking self-confidence in his gift. Maybe people were mocking his teaching and preaching. Maybe he was facing fierce opposition and he was shrinking back. And Paul says, Timothy, fan the flame. Don't stop. Fan it. Don't walk away from the fire. Not even for an hour. Keep doing it. Oh, Christian, the same charges for you. Don't neglect your gifts. Don't stop serving Christ. Don't stop cultivating your gifts. Don't walk away from the fire. When you're tired, fan the flame. When you're discouraged, fan the flame. When you're afraid, Paul says, don't stop. Keep fanning. This is what you were made for as a Christian. 
Christianity and the church isn't some spectator sport where we just, most of us sit on the sidelines and watch the elders or leaders get in the game, get in the match to do the work. Not at all. Just to illustrate this, I can tell by many of your social media posts this past month that many of you were addicted to the cricket matches on your TV. Many of you were watching the ICC World 2020 going on in India. It captivated many of us. Now, Certainly watching those matches is fun. But for any of us that have played sports, getting in an actual game is far more enjoyable. The church is not meant for men and women to sit on the sidelines, to sit on the bench watching others play. But we're all to serve and join the action. We all have a role. And all roles are a blessing, just like in cricket. The batsman isn't better than the bowler. The fielders have to do their part. Everyone has to play well. Everyone has to use their gifts. And friends, so it is with the church. We are members of one body. All of us with a part to play. All of us with a role to play. All of us have to get in the match. We don't just come to church on Fridays. Friend, fellow Christian, fellow member of Redeemer Church of Dubai, you are the church. You are the church today and every day. Church gathered on Friday mornings and church scattered the rest of the week. We are saved and brought in to be sent to go out. You exist for God and the church So friend, fan the flame of your gifts to serve this church, to serve our God. And how can you be confident in using your gifts? How could Timothy there in Ephesus be confident in using his gifts? Who is your power to serve using your gift? Well, after issuing that charge and appeal in verse 6, look at verse 7. Look at the encouragement Paul leaves us with this morning. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear... Timothy, don't be afraid. Redeemer Church of Dubai, don't be afraid. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy, don't be afraid. Redeemer Church of Dubai, God has not given you a spirit of fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of your gifts. Don't be ashamed of preaching the gospel. Don't be ashamed of serving the church. This is what you were designed to do, and God himself is with you. Now, there's a debate as to whether the S in spirit should be a lowercase or uppercase S. Uppercase meaning that what Paul is saying is that God gave us the Holy Spirit, or lowercase meaning spirit in reference to our personal spirit. You'll notice the ESV translates it with a lowercase s, personal spirit. Both of them are true statements. However you take it, both are true. God has given every believer the Holy Spirit to be your comforter, to come alongside you, to equip you. He's also given us a personal spirit that should not fear, because in Christ, Paul says, we have nothing to fear. Nor death, nor judgment, nor darkness, nor hunger. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. Fellow Christian, you have the resources to use your gifts to the glory of God. 
And you live in a great city to use your gifts. I love living in the UAE. I love Dubai and Sharjah and Ajman and Elaine and the cities of the UAE. I love meeting right here in the center of Dubai. We live in a strategic and wonderful place for utilizing our gifts to God's glory. Make no mistake, each and every one of us is here for such a time as this. I don't know how long you have to live in the city, but it is a worthy place of you utilizing your gifts and talents to God. Maybe you saw the magazine article uh, written by Forbes this past week that said, that argued nine reasons that Dubai is the most important city in the world in the 21st century. Nine reasons, things like a high amount of immigrants, a gateway city between Europe and Africa and Asia. It's a cultural hotspot, a center for commerce and business. And friend, you live here. We don't have to get on a plane and go to some strategic place. We live here in the center of the Arabian Peninsula. So whether you have a month here, whether you have a year here, whether you have 10 years or three decades, I don't know how long God has for you here, but I know that when your time is done, you will probably have an entire album full of selfies that you've taken. An album full of interesting moments with cool buildings, sunsets, or even dinosaurs. But friend, if we were to examine the entire album of your Dubai life on that day when you leave this place, what will we see? Would we see anything beyond the outrageous images that we post on Facebook? Friend, don't waste your time here in the desert. Don't waste your job. Don't waste your studies. Don't waste your neighborhood. Don't waste your trips to the mall. Don't waste your conversations. Don't waste your friendships. Don't waste your church ministry. Don't waste your gift. Timothy had become nervous, afraid, and timid. Perhaps he was hesitant to use his gift. Let that not be you. Let's together live a truly successful life here in the desert. Redeemer Church of Dubai, fan the flame of the gift God has given you. Let's not stop until our final breath when God himself decides that we're done. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help us. Father, help our church to fan the flame of the gifts you've given us by faith. Would we be hard at work in serving you in this place? Protect us from fear. Give us faith. Would many hear the gospel and trust in Christ to save them here in Arabia to your honor and glory and fame? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.